Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to CTN. And to learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Today's topic is uh, what we are living today, which is crisis. You've got uncertainty. And you got to do a lot of that. But the topic here is leading through crisis, which is navigating uncertainty and at the same time, driving innovation and building resilience. So why we call it a crisis? Well, we have war, we have political instability, we have recession, and then we just are almost done with pandemic, knock on wood. But then that all of that combined is creating a lot of demand on the leaders to really show their chops as leaders carrying the weight of all of uh, the business demands and what customers are talking and how our individual lives are changing, how to carry all of that and keep pushing forward. So while we say, okay, we are going to be navigating through uncertainty, but it's not just getting by. You also have to drive innovation. You have to manage talent. You have to build the resilience we needed and and the time taught us that we need to learn how to bounce back if at all something again happens which is not what we expected which means we have to have a robust a resilient and an agile environment for business in the turbulent times that we have today and even for the future so how is the leadership developed that is supposed to be happening all along, and we have been investing in leadership development, but how should that be reformed so that the outcome of that, that academy that we create, creates, turns out leaders who are relevant and prepared for the times that we know we have dealt just now, and in future, it it could even become more complex. What kind of business model reimagination and what kind of adaptation to the changing customer needs would we need to do? And to that end, what would be the type of empathy and the cultivation of a culture that these leaders will have to do, which will make our organizations relevant and they will thrive and survive? And to that end, what new muscles these leaders will have to develop? so that they're effective in this era of uncertainty and change and also for the future. Well, that's a lot that I have mentioned here, but I could not have had a better guest than Vince Kellen, who is a chief information officer with the University of California, San Diego. Hey, Vince, how are you? Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. So you see, I I kind of laid out a rather elaborate background or a context. So... Among the many challenges we all are facing, which one would you say the tops tops the charts for you? And or have you faced already when we are going through this crisis? And what have you done to overcome it? Well, you know, your your entry stirred a lot of questions in me, uh, as well as a lot of recollections. And, you know, when you say crisis, I link crisis to foresight. Right. So human beings have foresight. So the degree we exhibit foresight is the degree we don't exhibit crisis. So there's a relationship between the two, both personally and organizationally. And uh, 
So I think obviously the crisis that we hit uh, earlier, which was COVID, uh, really turned out not to be a crisis per se for my unit because we had already invested in many of the things that were useful during the crisis, including flexible work arrangements, a lot of remote work, a lot of learning how to work through essentially tools like Zoom or Teams or whatever uh, for two years prior to that. Uh, and not because we were preparing for a crisis, but because we wanted to have a vibrant, engaged workforce that could have some balance in their life and and, and manage uh, the demands that we throw at them. And so that bit of foresight, accidental maybe, lucky maybe, um, ended up being a benefit during uh, the COVID crisis we had. And we continued with all our projects. Uh, unabated. We had some major ERP transformations, but we were not relying upon consultants showing up at our offices to get that work done. We had orchestrated everything to work very remotely during the whole process. Uh, so we never really skipped a beat uh, in the middle of it. So I think the secret in dealing with crisis is to invest in many attributes personally and in your organization early and often to be ready for many different types of crises. And since we don't have a crystal ball and we don't have infinite resources, we could go nuts trying to go and try to be prepared for everything and anything that's possible. And that may not be seen in the right light by the folks who are pointing up the cash. How do you deal with that? Uh, no, I, I think, well, you that may be true, but the set of, organizational and human skills to face crises are finite and pretty well understood. Resiliency is one of them. Uh, and so resilience in the organization is to be able to roll with changes, be able to deal with ups and downs either in the market or inside the organization. And you can set up resiliency in your organization by being able to execute reorganizations, small or subtle or large, quickly. Now, there's a way to do that through the motivation and the inspiration of the workforce as well. Uh, so in order to be ready to execute the changes you need to make to deal with the environment, you have to have a workforce that's like eager to execute those changes. And we know that that can be invested in early. I think a personal resiliency is one that I'm a little more um, been thinking about lately, especially for the next generation of IT folks and IT and business leaders coming up because there's a sort of personal resiliency that needs to be cultivated inside uh, leaders. And this is right out of uh, Warren Bennis and crucibles of leadership and how uh, many leaders have to walk through a bit of a valley of darkness in order to learn the resiliency needed to face and especially ward off future crises. And when you... Actually, good that you're recognizing and acknowledging, and I think the world is too, that the newer generation of leaders cannot be thinking that they will get a snapshot of a business and it's going to stay status quo for next five years, right? They literally have right. to build a plane by, uh, while flying it, or for that matter, dismantle the same plane while flying it and then fixing it again. It's, mm -hmm. it's like an ever-changing plane of sorts. Yes. And, yeah, and, the, and the leader may fail and fall and have to get back up and try again. Absolutely. Now, we traditionally were never offered that academy. So you're learning on the job. 
and there is a cost of those mistakes which will be borne by the organization by that individual but is it a good idea for us to say okay go ahead and keep sandboxing it at the expense of the organization or could there be something which could be brought close to a simulated environment in which these people can do it but then when you're trying to deal with emotional traumas you can't do a pull the plug test to simulate a trauma one of the beauties of it, one of the beauties of the human mind is you don't have to live it to learn it you can learn from others and so the first thing i do when i face a newer situation is i call around and i talk to folks how did you handle x what happened here tell me the story and so i absorb and learn through others and then of course i can freely simulate in my own mind what i think are possible scenarios i don't think we've come close to tapping the art of learning through others and learning through simulation and uh, that's obviously how you can do that now i was trained in the martial arts and as an instructor for 29 years uh and so we are training for a situation we never want to have happen so we have to simulate and we have to have fidelity in that simulation that mirrors what we're going to encounter and yes there's ways of doing that military knows this as well uh so i think uh we don't have to necessarily learn on the job i think we have to commit ourselves to study see so you were almost a sensei right in 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 the sense like since you were practicing martial arts and we also know that there are some people who become sensei then which is the leader or master and then there are some who are going through the training but they never continue to get their black belt so if i were to you know, draw a parallel here mm-hmm. do you want all leaders to essentially achieve the sensei status or they could just be in that journey and still be able to become good enough so that they can deal with the crisis that we are seeing unfold yeah i mean the, first of all we'll have to define leadership you know the question in leadership is what are you leading if you're leading ideas um then it might not be people and budget but you're leading ideas you have a leadership role uh, if you're an individual contributor and you're not so much interested in what i call the care and feeding of large numbers of teams then you still have your own resiliency in potential crises you may have to deal with in your role professionally uh so i think that it's absolutely the case that some people are like no i'm quite comfortable being an individual contributor but that doesn't mean i'm not going to say to them and say but you have some leadership responsibilities uh based upon your skill and expertise they might not be nearly as big as somebody else but they're still important and we still need you to help others along in the in the journey uh so i take a very gradated view of leadership uh and so we have a leadership development program that we use internally uh in my unit it doesn't distinguish between rank on it anybody can be a leader uh who is interested in and some are and some are not and that's perfectly fine too i mean it's for each person to decide where they kind of feel they fit best in the world so would you broad stroke the leadership development not necessarily undermining uh what it means for a person at the top where the stakes are high and their decisions that they make could have a far reaching impact compared to someone who might be even an individual contributor or a middle manager yeah. who might yes. have a relatively smaller footprint absolutely i i don't distinguish between the two of them and partly because the the view that i take and it has to do with crisis 
I often say that self-awareness is seven-eighths of leadership. When you know you're part of the problem, you're close to getting there. And until you know you're part of the problem, you're pretty far from really mastery of the situation. And so that self-awareness, that self-questioning is what gives you resiliency to face the crisis and to look at things from a different perspective, to have the courage or the freedom to cognitively reframe in things that you don't believe you ever would have. And so that is a skill that can be taught to anybody at any, you know, any adult age at any point in their journey. And then once you get there, there's the technical aspects of leadership, uh, which I would call communication and motivation and a mastery of some technical disciplines that you, that you want to study. Uh, but once you've committed to the self-awareness journey, the other parts get easier. Should we allow an individual to call themselves as a self-proclaimed leader or should we have a benchmark for us to say, all right, you are a first level leader, a second or the 10th level leader, like you again, you know, drawing a parallel to your uh, yeah. martial arts where, there, where you have ranks and or if nothing else, belts, which sim- tells you that what level of mastery you have accomplished. So is there something like that in leadership? Would it make sense to have those yeah. kind of levels in leadership. No, there, there's been some work in certainly in the uh, academic side of life and the leadership side of life to distinguish between different types or capabilities of leadership. Uh, I happen to be a big fan of Bernard Bass and what he's written on transformational leadership. And I, I would say that, um, you know, le- leaders come in many shapes and sizes, and some people get phenomenally successful with kind of subpar leadership capabilities, uh, and typically through fear and a sort of strictness or rigor. And as a former martial arts instructor, I can get performance out of anybody with fear. That's a cheap parlor trick. The harder trick is to get performance out of people out of their own desire. And so this notion about motivation or inspirational motivation that Bernard Bash talks about is important uh, in the leadership skills. So when I look at the leaders, I look at how much the people that work for them yearn for the contact versus avoid the contact. And what is the sense of feeling that the person is, 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 is getting as they work with that leader over a period of time? Uh, and so many leaders do not have the resiliency to be authentic in their leadership. They want to maintain their guard for some reason uh, and thus keep kind of at a psychological distance uh, those that are around them. And so I think this, this journey through authenticity and resiliency and self-critique and self-awareness are a critical component of dealing with crisis. Those are all the skills that are tapped into when you've got a team facing a crisis. If you could do an assessment on an individual who uh, is showing some traits related to becoming a good leader over time, or at least they're showing that, yes, they're on the right path, would you draw a line like a threshold that they have to cross before they are ready for managing through crisis? Um, I don't know if it's a threshold, but I will say that the rule of thumb is when the sequence of events are getting ahead of the person, the person is at a level they're not capable of performing well enough. Uh, 
And crises are an example of that. It's a sequence of events that are now getting ahead of you. The leader who can seem to stay ahead of the crisis of events is a sign that, okay, they're ready for the next level, whatever the level they're operating at. And how do you get stay ahead of the, the sequence of events coming at you? Foresight, study of the environment, but also preparation and investment in teams of people who can help you get ahead of that. And so when I see leaders who are having a positive influence on those around them and are able to, one, find the capacity in their own life and time to do things uh, and seem to be a bit ahead of the sequence of events, they're ready for that next level. So it's kind of a continuum. Um, but those are the things we look that I look for, certainly uh, early on uh, in that. Leader who comes and says, I'm constantly swamped. I'm getting pegged with all these requests and all these issues, and, and I'm, I just don't have enough time. How do you cope with it? And I say, okay, we have some other conversations to have before I can tell you how I cope with that, because I got to look at to all the reasons why you are swamped for your time. And it probably has to do with you are unable to improve your staff or your team select the right people for your team, and then motivate the right people for your team, and then build the teamwork among the team in order to do that. And I'll give you a metaphor for the high bar for teamwork that I put out there. And it's, I got this from, believe it or not, a hockey coach who was telling me a story of him sitting at a, uh, he was a coach for my son in hockey, and he was sitting at an event, and he happened to be sitting next to an NHL scout. So he asked the scout, what do you look for in talent? This so I said, well, that's pretty easy, actually. Well, there's a lot of players here who have great speed, great agility, great shot. That's not what I'm looking for. They need to have all that, no question. But what I'm looking for is the player that as soon as they step on the ice, the other five players are better. Now, nice. think about that criteria for everybody on the team. The commitment for that person to make their teammate better regardless of their skill. That's not taught. We do just the opposite in management. You, be, you must be good. Don't help that other guy because you're in competition with them. Um, I look at my team and said, we have to understand each other's weaknesses. Another metaphor I use for this is imagine a third baseman and a shortstop in baseball, American baseball. And imagine the shortstop has a little trouble getting further to the right. It's a good idea for the third baseman to know that because the third baseman will anticipate a ball in that area and be able to cover it. So those two players who are self-aware and aware of each other's weaknesses and strengths and are willing to cover each other for that will catch more balls than others who are fighting about it. For the players fighting about it, the balls go through them and they lose the game. So it's real simple. Uh, we don't do that enough with our teams. And I think these are the investments that actually get you to crises. See, very interesting when you talked about this whole, uh, you know, when a, person, a player comes, the other players get better. That's good when you have a team of players where everyone is at the same level. But when we're talking about leadership in an organization, it typically is also very hierarchical. Does that hierarchy come in the way of truly developing leaders? Because yes, they could work at a peer level, but there are players that across the hierarchy too. Um, there's a hierarchy in skill in professional sports. Make no mistake about it. They're not all at the same level. Uh, the top players at a different level, and everybody knows it. And still, a great leader has the ability to reach out and connect between all of those levels. And organizational life and hierarchy is often overly celebrated. The hierarchy is overly celebrated. I tend to view my role as a node on the network with certain skills and abilities that I excel at that I contribute in that way. 
and then others have build skills and ability that contribute in other ways. So rather than think of it as a strict hierarchy, it's a little bit flatter, at least in day-to-day operations. The hierarchy comes when you have to make decisions. But if you do a great job of a leader, there's few decisions that you really have to make that are going to be extraordinarily significant or that it's wise for you to make because it's a bit of a challenge for those uh, below you. And so those decisions can be uh, lesser and lesser. So um, a sports metaphor would be, let's, let's take basketball. If you've got a player coach on the floor, the coach doesn't have to give the play. The player coach on the floor can give the play and the coach can observe and monitor. And in some cases that happens uh, in sports where the players get so good on the floor, the coach isn't necessarily needed in the middle of the play. So I think our job as leaders is to make ourselves a little less visible, believe it or not, and to be more facilitative. So very interestingly, when the, the team is singing Kumbaya and lives are normal, it will be great for you to be invisible. Do you think you could afford to do that and also train your other people who work with you today to work towards that invisibility when there is crisis, or that's the time when you have to pop up to take charge, etc. Because yeah. very soon you want to bring normalcy, even during crisis, and then go invisible again. What 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 should be the mindset at the time when there is a crisis for a leader who yeah. otherwise strives to be invisible? Yeah, the the crisis denotes fear, and so. And it usually denotes a bad fear, a cortisol-induced fear, where you feel like, oh, my gosh, the sequence of events around me are not something I can keep up with. So then as a leader, one, if you've invested in enough other leaders around you, it's a shared responsibility. It's not just you alone. So you have your own direct reports. You have important people in the organization that you have cultivated. And all of all, all y'all get together and you drop a play. <laughs> you know, you say, okay, we have this in front of us. What's the opportunity? How can we how can we actually come through this better? What's our winning designed or st- response to this, right? So another metaphor I like to use is, you know, Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and the Bulls. You know, imagine a game in a playoff where it's fourth quarter, they're down by three points. It's a crisis. They should have been won the game by 20 points and they're having a bad game. What, what's the team doing when they're huddling? They're drawing up a play. And what's Michael Jordan thinking? Nothing but net, right? And the leader has to set that tone, has to be able to set that tone of accomplishment and approach at the crisis so that it's looked at not as a crisis, but as an opportunity. So it's the cognitive reframing of the crisis. And I think that's what one has to do. Now, we're seeing in the political sphere in the United States here, manufacturing crises that are not being reframed as opportunities but being reframed as, you know, uh, death battles, so to speak. Uh, And so uh, I think the rest of uh, uh, a lot of people, and certainly that are watching this, tend to think, is that how leadership should look? No, no, leadership should not look that way. Uh, When we face with a crisis, we shouldn't double down on making the crisis worse. We should be looking for the opportunity. One is that you and I aspire and actually try to appeal to the folks to, you know, find a leadership within them or find a leader within them and try to work on themselves and or appeal to the organizations to help do a good job with the 
leadership development. But then which are some of the pitfalls and or gotchas or mistakes the organizations are doing, making, or the leaders who are trying to develop other leaders are making, which is holding them back from truly preparing these people or preparing themselves uh, to effectively deal with crisis. And I'm not going to use the word crisis in a derogatory term. I yeah. can still yeah. like to use it as a way of saying this is what's happening around us. Yes, we could look at it as an opportunity, but still it is a disruption. It is not a smooth sailing yes. road. How do you prepare yeah. the sailors for the rough seas? And what mistakes are they making right now, which is preventing them yeah. from preparing these sailors? Well, we've put about 60 people through our leadership program, and it's been running for about five years now. So I'm educating and providing an exploration for each of those folks who go through that program to be ready, right? And so you have to invest in that well ahead of time. So that's the first thing you do. And then the second thing you do is you make sure that when you're faced with the crisis or the opportunity, you start to develop the language and the plan so that you can motivate folks and help them out. Um, and oftentimes, if you've got more years behind you and more experience, you've seen more situations. And so somebody going through what looks like a crisis to them, to you looks like a small blip. You explain to them, oh, no, no, I've seen many other organizations. You're doing phenomenally well. Your response is spot on. You're working through the issues great. Don't worry. It might feel bad for you right now, but I remind people times of great stress are times of great learning. There is great learning opportunity here. Uh, and usually they go, well, it doesn't feel that way. I can't imagine that. I said, well, you know, if you've lived enough, you'll, you'll, you will be presented with some pretty jarring situations. Uh, and, and then you can help others as they go through their crises. Uh, so I think walking others through that uh, and saying, no, you're, you're exhibiting the skills, you're exhibiting the, the right actions. Keep on, keep on with it. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And with you mentioned about this, the last response that you had to the question, which also in a way indicates that the more gray hair you and I have, the, the easier any such crisis or opportunity that comes our way, it becomes easier for us to handle. But then the people who we are trying to develop, if they always feel or somehow it, it, uh, they start feeling that, okay, I've got to go through this for 20 odd years before I'll get better, that itself will create not a, a sense of fear, but a sense of inability to be able to deal with it effectively. How do we get over that stigma that you have to go through quite a few bouts of rough seas and choppy waters before you will start feeling comfortable with the uncomfortable. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, 
IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoke All at CIOTalkNetwork.com. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Vince, you mentioned about this, this you know, you, if you've lived long enough, right? And there are people who sometimes demonstrate good leadership chops. But do you think they have to go through this academy of life, if you will? for a minimum number of years before they will start becoming uh, comfortable or rather, I mean, I, I use the term numb as well, uh, but start becoming comfortable with these things that will keep happening around them. They'll say, okay, I've not seen them all, but I know this will keep happening. It has happened. So uh, they remain even keel throughout the situation and they just deal with it better. Well, there are some leaders that are fast learners and others that take a little more time and neither one is better or worse, quite frankly. Um, Oftentimes, the folks who exhibit great leadership potential very young do so through a bit of force of will more than a force of understanding. And uh, and so saying, well, you know, you got to get gray hairs to get good at leadership. Well, that's like saying, you know, a tree's got to grow tall in order to have good shade. I mean, that's the way nature works. So if I'm going to be upset about nature, then I got some other issues I got to deal with here. So if I'm anxious for my own maturity to go faster, uh, you're not enjoying life, I guess. Right. So you got to live in the present. Uh, You know, while you got to be concerned with the future, each moment is the present. You only have the present. So I remind, you know, I've coached another, a number of younger uh, leaders and they all report the same thing, which is, I suppose I'll have to go through this a few more times before I get more comfortable. I said, yes, that's part of the journey. Uh, It's unavoidable. I mean, the first time you get on a horse to ride it, you're not going to feel comfortable. It takes a bit of time. And then after a few years, you get some mastery over it, as with anything else. Uh, So if you're going to rue that or worry about that, then let's talk about other things. And if you look at history, especially, I've just been reading about uh, the, the um, General Sherman, uh, William Sherman, a Civil, Civil War military leader. Uh, the man had a nervous breakdown in the middle of his leadership and had some real issues. But fortunately, him and Ulysses Grant were got to be friends with each other and got to support each other along the way. And the historians are saying, you know, he actually improved as he went on with the tactics and what, and what he was doing there. That's a common story everywhere. Uh, leaders going through these what are called leadership turns. Um, so I would just advise the young person, don't worry about that. Keep going. Just stay in the present. And yes, as you get wiser, as you get older, hopefully you get wiser. Now, with, with what you just said, uh, what's your advice to these 
you know, not a wannabe leaders, but upcoming or step up candidates for leadership, should they uh, step away or rather, you know, abstract yourself from what's happening in front of you so that you don't feel it's happening to you, almost start feeling that it's happening for you. It's a learning opportunity. But if they are sure. feeling that they are in the train, if you will, which is going at 100 miles an hour, that could create panic or that could create yeah. loss of objectivity. Yeah. But is it a yeah. training thing? Yeah, it is. It's a reminding. It's a bit of a training. It's cognitive reframing. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I go back to support other sports manager, John Wooden, a famous coach of UCLA basketball team, who would sit way up in the bleachers and watch his team from on high. So I, I often thought he wanted to see it as God sees it, not as he sees it. So I remind folks, you have to look at the scene as God sees it, not as you see it. What does that mean? You have to get out of yourself, right? So meaning don't worry about you and don't worry about your own fears. Instead, look, step back a bit. Look at the larger scene. Look at the trajectory of the organization. Now, to do that requires the person to have a definition of their own purpose that transcends their current role and perhaps their current organization. They have to have a sense of continuity that's what I'll call more connected to humanity than just the temporal moment. Uh, so that then gives you the ability to step out and say, okay, I'm going to step out here. And, and if, if I'm a part of the problem and I need to get removed from the situation, so be it. But I'm going to exercise my ability to look at this situation uh, in order to navigate what we're going to be going through here. That's a very important skill. I don't think many get it because they're so worried about their person self, their ego, and their own uh, role and their own situation that it's hard for them to remove from that. But I think you have to, and you have to surround yourself with people, or at least a couple of them who will make you do that <laughs> and give you the, per I give people the permission to remind me I'm being a jerk. Not everybody, but some. And, and there are some people who, have had uh, a setback and or people who start thinking that they can uh, essentially manipulate others. And that could be yes. part of their upbringing or others. Mm -hmm. And otherwise they could have good talent, but they have these few vices that developed due to whatever that may have happened in their lives. Should an organization, when they identify such a thing, forgive it or help them get rid of it so that we don't lose an otherwise a potential mm -hmm. candidate for leadership or we discount them completely. What, 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 would, what should an organization do for people like that that should be, should we allow them to get a rebirth is, as a leader? Uh, well, first, make them aware of it. So if, you know, the first, uh, my first role for leaders, you got to be self-aware. And so I, I was coaching somebody and the person said to me, do you promise that you will tell me when I am part of the problem? I said, yes, I promise. Do you promise to absorb that? She goes, yes, I do. And so one, get the person ready uh, for that. Uh, so, and then, and then say, okay, now let's talk. So I was just coaching a leader and this particular person is extremely good at lateral leadership, but uh, he's not that so great at what are called top-down leadership meaning the ability to influence through motivation is really, really good, but the ability to essentially make some very difficult decisions and actually 
have to tap into some of those, what I'll call manipulation skills, is weaker. And I told him, you know, for the future, I'm going to need more of that from you. Let's work on this. And this person is great. I'm aware of it now. And yeah, I agree. I, I kind of shy away from that. I said, but you don't have to do it alone. You got others who can help you. You're so strong in this one area. You got others who are better in this other area. So use them. The first thing a great leader does is doesn't do it all themselves. They find somebody else who's really good and better than them at it and have them work the problem. Uh, so yes, make them self-aware. Then two, give them the chance to work on it. And I think three quarters of the time uh, they can get there. It's usually if there's just some deeper psychological dysfunction or motivation behind the person that's just harder and a little more incorrigible. At that point, you then may have to part ways. Now, I know you, uh, you know, you mentioned about manipulation, but I just want to make sure I confirm this. Is manipulation a desired trait for a leader? I think all great leaders who are verbally gifted are manipulative without knowing it because we work in a soup of human relationships for which hierarchy is still important and for which people attend to our words and will react without speaking and maybe without even uh, expressing what they're thinking in a way sensitive to our words. Thus, we develop a word pattern that looks to be successful to us not knowing that it's actually feeling manipulative by the other side. And so all leaders tend to have that. They used to call Steve Jobs in his reality distortion field, where he would, just, he would try to manipulate reality itself uh, with his words. And so, yes, I think all, of, all leaders tend to have a, a, a way of doing that without knowing it. And most times it's good. Sometimes it's not. And there are some leaders who get real good at manipulating through language and sort of getting their way. And that leader says, okay, I'm being effective because now that I'm getting what I want out of that person, what they're not asking is how good does that person feel? But isn't that narcissism? Um, potentially, yes. But, but to an extent, many humans have a hint of narcissism in them. We all have a self-interest. Right. So in fact, one thing I like to do is I like to learn from about other people. So I ask them, tell me about yourself like you're doing with me. And, you know, they go on. So I think most people do have an interest in explaining themselves and understanding themselves and an inward look at themselves. Uh, so I think that's natural and, and part of the human condition. It's when it is used to make somebody uh, to remove their agency, to remove their autonomy, and to make them feel bad. That's when it's and, starting to get bad. And so, so where we are heading, right? I mean, if you see evolution is happening in all areas, good or bad, right? Whether it's political landscape and, and business innovation landscape, newer technologies are coming, newer disruptions are happening. And not everything should be looked at it as a crisis. It should be looked at as a, a totally an, a different dimension that we are in, entering into, a different phase of life or phase of existence that we are entering into. What is the kind of muscle required for that? Because we had never seen or never had a frame of reference of how to deal with it. Could, what could type of muscle would you yeah. Go ahead. Well, could you reframe that question a little? Because I'm trying to figure out what muscle. So, you're so like, to get like at. you know, so like, suppose I'll say from a technology standpoint, people started talking about 
you know, your chat GPT and other AI, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And so you got digital workers that's coming. Yeah. Then people are started talking about, and some people yeah. have spoken about, you know, uh, like we saw pandemic totally uh, in our lifetime. We never thought that's going to happen. Of course, wars, they have happened. And in the business climate, things are happening, which you have never seen happen before. So yeah. not all of us ever in our lifetime had ever thought we will be dealing with this, which means we had no benchmark, no, nothing to, to uh, you know, use as a prior example, what's quoted in a book or, or yeah. analyzed. Yeah. Okay. The, the muscle you're getting at, I call foresight. Okay. So now I'm reading this, which you can't see. There we go. Academic papers on chat GPT. I have personally, for curiosity reasons, been studying about neurons and neural networks uh, for a long time. Part of my PhD work was in cognitive psychology, which had a bit of a romp in neuropsychology in a particular part of the brain. Uh, knowing 20 years ago that perhaps someday neural networks are going to achieve a level of performance that uh, would be quite interesting. So in a way, whether I know it or not, I've been exercising my foresight muscle out of, and so I would call foresight through curiosity. And so I would tell an organization, you have to have curious people who want to think about the future uh, and start to uh, reason about it. I think most things in the future have trajectories that are well-established 20 years earlier and are inspectable. When the iPad came out, um, and when Apple came out the iPad, everybody says, oh, my gosh, where'd that come from? Well, <laughs> there was like four or five failures of an iPad thingy well before that. In fact, one of the first places to look for something that's going to take off is where has it failed X times in the past? And sure enough, neural networks have had their two winters of discontent since they started. Uh, and now they're exploding again. So uh, the first thing, when I see a failure in the market uh, on technology, and I see a second failure, on the, then I'm all over it. I'm like, wait a minute, this, this might be the next runaway thing. So I think there's fundamentals in there that give us the ability to know how to anticipate the future. We can't get everything right, but we can get enough that we can get close up. And yes, there's certain things that are what we call black swans. They're just going to come at you. Uh, and there's no amount of prediction you can do. But then the resiliency kicks in, which, by the way, you can invest in the, in the resiliency ahead of time. So I'm going to end with, I think we're letting humans off the hook by saying that we can't plan for things. I think, I think we're, humans are a little more capable than that. I think there's more we can do uh, to be ready either to react to things or to get ahead of things. One last comment I'd like from you in terms of where we are heading, right? And we don't know where we are heading because I, I wish we had a crystal ball. But what should be our fundamental values, principles, beliefs, that yes. we should keep intact because things will continue to disrupt, get disrupted, changed, etc., which will allow us to keep that solid foundation, which will allow us to further build our leadership potential. Yeah, I, for me, the values question is one that I think about uh, even more so. And I think leaders have to be grounded in values. So for me, a critical value is who's being left behind uh, but because of technology. 
the world is getting cleaved into two right now. Those who are part of this technocratic uh, realm, us, for example, and those who are outside looking in and not seeing any of the benefits. I'm deeply concerned about the long-term direction of that. So I think, yes, you have to point at your values. And I think the key value for leadership is who's being left behind and how are we bringing those who are being left behind along with us? I think that's an important part of the human story. All right. So uh, once again, thank you so much, Vince, for uh, sharing your insights about how uh, we can all work at our respective events and help others for, uh, in the areas where they can effectively lead through crisis. They could navigate uncertainty, drive innovation, and build resilience. So thank you so much again, Vince. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And listeners, please connect with us on social media. Subscribe to our podcast once again. Thank you for listening to CTN. This is your host, Sanjog All. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit ciotalknetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.